But I actually want to do something a little bit different uh, for those that are in-house. If you're on Zoom, it's not going to matter for you. I want to do something. This is going to be maybe a weird service. It's weird. Like I, This is weird for me. So this is going to be weird for me. I, I promise I wouldn't say that this morning, but it is going to be weird. But I want you to have a different perspective. Because I think sometimes it's really interesting that when we come at something from a different view, we see things totally differently. So my wife is a psychotherapist. Faith is a, is a therapist. And she says, sometimes you just have to sit on another side of the room. So you see the same thing. You're in the same room, but you're sitting on a different side of it, so you see the room totally differently. So what I would love to do is if you guys swap sides. You don't have to, but that's the invitation. Just switch sides. Good job. Thank you, everybody. You guys are the best. Though I noticed some people didn't move at all. Just saying. Just. So what I would also like to do this morning uh, is that we're in this, kind of still going through the stories of Mark, coming to the end of the, of the Gospel of Mark, which is a little bit sad for me because I love this book so much. But... It's actually, it obviously gets a little bit heavier and darker as these stories go along. So this is actually a really heavy story, but I don't want it to be heavy. I don't want to make light of it, but that's kind of the tone that I'm trying to set this morning. But there's something really, really, really interesting that I think Mark does through his writing, and I think he almost does it accidentally on purpose. I think the Spirit obviously is working through him as he's kind of telling the story. But I don't think Mark fully understood what it meant when he was writing it. And I think that's often how our lives are anyway. And in order to, to do that, I would love to do a little bit of a, um, a demonstration, if you will. Who likes chocolate? Okay, Mary, I've, I, I, Mary, can you come up here, please? No, you're not going to have to do anything. You just have to stand here. But I got four chocolate. I don't know how old these are. They're from the cupboard. They may be old. Don't don't eat them unless you want to take the risk. Okay, so Mary's got four tiny chocolates in her hand. And Mary, you like chocolate? Yeah, me too. Who else likes chocolate? Adrian, why don't you come up? <coughs> Adrian also likes chocolate, but Mary has the chocolate. Okay? So I'm going to give this piece of paper, Adrian. This is just going to hold, just going to hold it in front of you. This represents your desire. It's too small. Okay, well, I don't have any giant cardstock for you. Okay, so he, this, is, this represents Adrian's desire for the chocolate, but actually, it's not for the chocolate itself. It's because you desire Mary's desire for the chocolate. Okay? A little tricky. You actually 
are desiring the chocolate because Mary has it, because she wants it. Okay, so who else likes chocolate? Andrew, why don't you come on up, Andrew? Okay, so same deal, okay? So you just hold that, same beside Adrian there, okay? Now, Adrian desires Mary's desire for the chocolate. Andrew desires Adrian's desire for the chocolate and Mary's desire for the chocolate, okay? We need one more from this side. Yeah, come on up, come on up. There we go. Okay, so here, I'm actually going to give you two sheets of paper. If you could hold them both up, okay? Okay, so desire for the desire for the desire for the desire for the chocolate, okay? At this point, the desire isn't for the chocolate anymore. Everybody's actually kind of desiring each other's desire for the chocolate. Okay, does that make sense? I'm gonna give you an, I'm gonna give you a real life example of what happened to me yesterday. It was Faith's birthday yesterday, and so she decided to play some music, and we had this little tiny Bluetooth speaker. And this is the first time this has ever happened in our home. We've had this for a few years now. This little Bluetooth speaker. Mercy decided to pick it up and walk around the house with it. Okay, so she's holding it over her head, dancing with the speaker. She's kind of singing along to this song. Typical th- kid thing to do. Then something happened. Okay, we've had this for a long time. We've had this speaker for three years. No one has ever picked up the speaker like this before. No one has ever walked around the house like this before. All of a sudden, Judah wants the speaker, right? You know what I'm talking about? You see this. He wants the speaker. He's like, I want to do that. And so he's chasing mercy for the speaker. Mercy is not giving up the speaker. I found the speaker. I'm walking around the house with the speaker. And Judah gets angry, right? He's now chasing her angrily. Give me the speaker. I want the speaker. And Faith finally says, what is the deal? Judah, this has been sitting on our our counter by our door. He's passed by like 500 times a day for three years. Never once has he ever wanted to walk around our house with the speaker. Does he actually want to walk around the house with the speaker? No. He wants it because his sister has it. Okay, so if you, this is kind of a simple kind of display of what happens. So what could happen at this point? Now what I'm describing to you is actually uh, a sociological theory, uh, like kind of constructed by a French thinker, René Girard. Who's ever heard of René Girard before? He's a Catholic French uh, kind of literary critic brilliant mind. He died a few years ago, five or six years ago. Really, really, really smart. And he calls this mimetic desire. Now let's say that together. Mimetic desire. He calls it mimesis. Okay, This is a a simple thing. You want what the others want because they want it. And he looks back in the scriptures. He looks back in, um, in history. And he sees the playing out of mimetic desire all throughout time and civilization. He says, basically his premise is that people aren't that creative. We're not that novel. We're not that smart. We're not that original that we are always imitating each other. From birth, we're imitating language from our parents. We're, we're imitating our, our images of ourselves off of each other. 
things. You could think of like fashion is a really great example of this, or culture, or music, that you know you you basically want to be like everybody else, even when you don't want to be like everybody else. I had a, an experience when I was a little bit younger and more naive and a little bit stupid, and I thought I have a Mac Apple computer. I'm cool, right? I'm different. Matt, you know, he's got his smirk. You're a PC guy, aren't you? You're a PC guy, exactly. But I'm artistic and I'm creative and I've got an Apple, right? That's their brand. You're going to pay extra money for that creativity. No, I'm different. I'm cool. I've got my beanie hat and I've got my backpack and my Apple computer. And I'm going to go into Starbucks and sit down and write like a cool creative, right? You getting my vibe? So I walk into Starbucks and who am I sitting with? A hundred other cool beanie apple wearing, apple using people. The whole thing is filled with apple computers. I'm going to be different and end up being the same because I'm not that different. So Gerard would say, what would happen? I'm going to stop this from happening, Matt, because this could be brutal, okay? You have the chocolate. No, you're not going to throw it. You have the chocolate. You could. The desire reaches at a certain point. There are so many of us that want this chocolate bar because Mary wants it and we all want it. What are you supposed to do now? There's only four chocolates. So usually what could happen is Gerard would say, apocalypse. We are literally going to kill each other for the chocolate. It's going to be all out war. We're going to go at it, right? Nobody wants that. It's over, right? Our group is done. Our community is over. We kill each other for the chocolate. So what do we? What are we going to do? Oh, we're not going to share. <laughs> Heavens no. What are we going to do? No, you think. Gerard would say, he looks in history. He looks in religion. He looks in society. He looks in culture. He looks in families. He looks in marketing. He looks all over the place. He says, somebody is going to just have to take the fall for the chocolate. Someone's going to have to be the lightning rod for all of this anxiety. And he calls it scapegoating. So this, he calls it the scapegoat method. That this mimetic desire, the desire for the desire for the desire, there's so much pent-up anxiety. There's nowhere for it to go. We could kill each other. Or we could find someone to blame. Mary. Why'd you bring the chocolate here in the first place? How dare you? And Gerard would look back, 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 and say the very birth of religion was scapegoating, child sacrifice, animal sacrifice, people being expelled from communities. And what would happen is the person who's expelled from the community, usually in death or literal expulsion, you brought relief to our group. Thank you, Mary. We've killed you. Now you're out of the picture. You were the, the, the problem and the, the solution. So Mary becomes God. This is Gerard's theory, not mine. That you become kind of deified. That's divine. You've provided such relief from our anxiety. And so he would say the ritual of sacrifice gets embedded kind of human culture. It's not just the Israel, Israelite culture, Christian culture. It's cultures across the world. And if you're honest, 
like in my family yesterday, my, like if my wife had intervened, my son would have violently snatched that thing from my little girl's hand and she probably would have retaliated and Eden probably would have jumped in and there would have been a big family brawl over a Bluetooth speaker. Right? Is everyone tracking with me so far? Okay. You can keep those trophies. Or do everyone. You give these people a hand. That's great. You can, you can keep those for as a symbol. Okay. Good job. So, Mark, once I, I, it was actually uh, several years ago that it was a little piece of paper that someone in, the, in my, my former church, he kind of came across Gerard, and actually it's Pastor Jason's, you know, we had this like little trio of kind of people that we always kind of had these like esoteric conversations with, and his name was, uh, I know his name, anyway, I'm, I'm getting old. He gave me a little piece of paper on Gerard. And I was like, I have no idea who you're talking about, don't know what this is. And I started to read about it, investigate this guy. And it changed my paradigm. It blew my mind. And then when I came at the Gospel of Mark in particular, Mark tells his story in such a way that it's I can't not see it now. It's so obvious to me now. And so when we come to the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and how he has that, that mob of people have come around him. And Gerard would say, when you see the word mob, as I've shared before, it's not a good thing. It's usually not positive. Because you, usually with the mob, you, there's all kinds of anxiety. That mimetic desire. You just get swept away with the crowd. You don't even, are not even really taking responsibility for your own individual self anymore. Because the crowd is kind of dictating. You can become faceless and nameless in a crowd of people. And so you're not as culpable. And so when the Garden of Gethsemane, when Judas comes and gives Jesus a kiss on the cheek, and that crowd comes and takes him, and the disciples scatter, and Mark probably runs away naked in the shame, that crowd then takes Jesus. And Mark tells us that he takes them to the chief priests, where the high priests that's plural, which is a good indicator of what is happening. The religious leaders and scholars that had gathered together. It's the middle of the night, Passover week, and this thing is like the machinery of this thing is like a, a all cylinders firing. That in the middle of the night, there's this, been this kind of betrayal by Jesus' close disciple that these people had already gathered in the house of the high priest. Now we know him, Mark doesn't tell us, but we know him, this is Caiaphas related to Annas, so there's actually kind of a, a weird thing going on with the high priest, which shouldn't have happened. But he's not alone with the high priest. We know there's some, probably some Roman soldiers there as well from the garrison. We know they're not alone, there's actually some Jewish soldiers and some temple guards there as well. And we know the Sanhedrin is there, which is actually like at least 70 of the, of the top minds and kind of readers of the law. And the other religious scholars, we're talking probably 100 plus people in the middle of the night for a rogue trial before dawn. This thing is like, like in the works, but bad, reeks 
of something off because this is not how trials are conducted. This is not the normal way that things would be done. And so if you have a mob of people conspiring in the middle of the night, you can just imagine the anxiety in the room. And anxiety isn't like, oh, I'm nervous for a test. Not that kind of anxiety. Anxiety like, I have so much built up energy, I don't know what to do with it. And usually it's negative. It's, a, it's like a, an angry anxiety. It's like I feel so pent up. I'm on the ceiling, and I'm ready to, to snap kind of anxiety. And there's hundreds of these people waiting for Jesus. He's come into this machine that is just ready to blow. And you can just imagine what that must feel like. And so Peter, Mark tells us, he followed at a safe distance. Until they got to the chief priest's courtyard. Now, it's interesting because he probably shouldn't have been able to go in there. Some, some commentators think that actually it's John who had some sort of relationship with the high priest who kind of let Peter in. So we can kind of assume that John is maybe on the periphery as well. He's kind of floating in the background. But Mark doesn't really tell us that. We have to infer that. And here Peter is mingling with the servants. And he's warming himself by the fire. An open courtyard. There's lots of people going on. And the word for servants there actually could mean guards. So there's some guards downstairs in this outer courtyard. And somewhere in this big compound, Jesus has been taken. He's already been kind of roughed up. He's probably tied up. And he's come into this huge room of people waiting for him in the middle of the night. The high priest conspiring with the Jewish council looked high and low for evidence against Jesus by which they could sentence him to death. But they found nothing. Plenty of people were willing to bring false charges, but nothing added up. They ended up canceling each other out. They're contradicting each other. They're, come, they're bringing claims about this and that. Well, I saw Jesus do this, and the other person, well, that's, that's not fair. That's not right. He didn't do that, and they, they look foolish. They're not thinking straight, they're so, but they're so eager to trap Jesus. They're so ready to trap him and kill him. Then a few of them stood up and just plain lied. We heard him say, I'm going to tear down this temple. Built by hard labor and in three days, build another without lifting a hand. But even then, they couldn't exactly agree. So Jesus hadn't said that he's going to tear down the temple. He said that tear down this temple and it will be rebuilt. I'll rebuild it in three days. He's speaking of himself, his kind of impending crucifixion. And he's looking down the line. He says, you know, the Israelites, basically, the way you're going, the Romans are going to destroy this temple for you. But don't worry, I'll rebuild it. The house of God will be me. You'll make tabernacle with me through the Spirit. But they lied about him. And then in the middle of this, in the middle of this, all this frenzy, the, the chief priest stood up and asked Jesus, what do you have to say to the accusation? Now here's where Gerard has imprinted me, and I, I can't not see it. And here's where Mark is just, just really inviting us into, I think, a real full revelation of who Jesus was and who Jesus is today. 
the chief priest who's leading this whole thing. He's kind of in charge. He's kind of the de facto spiritual leader of the whole nation. He stands up and he asks Jesus, what do you have to say to these accusations? And Jesus says nothing. He's silent. If we're to pause, were Jesus to have defended himself, and see, that's not true, I never said that. If Jesus was to accuse, well, you're lying. Jesus say, that doesn't sound like me. If he engaged with that conversation at all, he's entering into that, that, that mechanism, that scapegoating circle. He becomes a part of the anxious system. He's participating in it now. And Mark says, Jesus is asked, he's being dragged into this very, very anxious, frenzied system, and Jesus actually says nothing. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't judge them. He doesn't excuse them. He doesn't excuse himself. He doesn't remove himself. He actually doesn't do anything. And in so doing nothing, he actually does two things. He makes it grind to a halt. He stops it. He just stops that anxiety. And that anxiety has nowhere to go, so it goes back into the crowd and it becomes even worse. Now the high priest tries again, this time asking. He's getting right to the point. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the one that everyone else has been waiting for? And remember, they're not thinking necessarily kind of spiritual Messiah the way we would think of Jesus Messiah today. They're not strictly, they're not strictly thinking, are you, you know, some sort of king. It's kind of this merge of like rogue king, usurper of Roman rule, spiritual leader, prophet. Like it's an amalgamation of a lot of different ideas. Jesus, are you that guy? Because if Jesus, his answer will determine his fate. Jesus says, yes, I am. Some translations, the, re the response is, I am, period. So if we can remember back to Moses in the burning bush where God says, I am, that's my name, I am. Before time and space, I am. In the future, I am, the past, eternal, the present, I am. Jesus is taking on the I am statement. But then he goes further and says, you'll see it for yourself. The son of man, seated at the right hand of the mighty one, arriving on the clouds of heaven. Jesus finally, 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 finally. Are you the Messiah, the high priest says. There's been rumblings and rumors and the donkey and the whatever. Come into the temple, you clear it. Are you the Messiah, the political rogue king, that if we could find that out, we could literally nail you on a cross and kill you and get this over with? Are you claiming to be David's heir, God's son, his chosen earthly king, to fulfill kind of Israel's mandate in the world? Jesus says, 
yes, I am. But I'm actually way more than that. Jesus says, I'm actually going to remind you guys that of Daniel, where the, the old Father God in the sky and the Son of Man who comes down, who's given all authority by God. I'm actually divine. Not only am I the Messiah, not only am I the, like, the rightful heir to this Davidic throne, but I'm much, much, much more. And you'll see that vindication in due time. Somehow Jesus skirts alongside this mechanism until it's not possible anymore. And all that, that whole room, they hear Jesus speak and that's it. That's it. The high priest lost his temper. And here's where I think Marcus is, if you just slow walk it, some movies have done a good job of this. I think the, the Passion of the Christ, for all of its flaws, the scene that they, they portray of Jesus' trial, I think they do this really, really well, where the, the, the high priest is actually kind of foaming at the mouth. He's spitting. He's so angry. He's lost control of his mouth. He's like slobbering over himself like a dog. And you can imagine the anxiety and the hatred and the anger in the room to hear Jesus say that. They say, how dare you talk like he loses it and he tears his garments and he shouts out, did you hear that? Do we need witnesses? You heard the blasphemy. Are you going to stand for this? They condemned him one and all and sentenced death. And then what inevitably happens in a very anxious system, in the scapegoating system that Gerard talks about, that what would, if I weren't here, Mary, what would have happened to you? Some started spitting. Some started punching. Some, no one directed this. No one said, okay, now, I'm going to crack him one. It just happened. Someone in that crowd, some, someone standing beside Jesus, the, 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 there's nowhere for their anxiety and their frenzied hatred to go except through violence. And so they violently express it. They spit at Jesus. They punch him. They hit him. They blindfold him. And they strike him. And it's awful. And if you can imagine Peter and John and the others maybe watching from afar, standing, doing nothing, Jesus is utterly, totally alone. And in Mark's story, this is where Jesus walks, the, on, the only walk that he can. No one else can do this. He walks this road alone. And the different perspective is that in at least what Gerard has taught me is once I read this story now, I see myself in the room. And I see Jesus and I'm doing nothing to help him. I, one, I, I can't, really. But I become a co-conspirer. I, be, I become a part of this collective murder. And Mark invites us slowly into this picture. And by 
exposing Peter and the disciples and himself. He does this really profound thing. He invites us to stand witness to this thing and, and ask us, are we a part of this collective murder of Jesus? That it wasn't, at this moment, it was actually everybody else who wanted Jesus to die. And in some, some few hours, they would take Jesus up on the platform and Pilate would present him to the crowd and say, who do you want, Barabbas or Jesus? They say, Barabbas, the murderer, the known murderer. We would rather have him walk our streets than the innocent Jesus who's done, literally done nothing. The same crowd that welcomed him in on the donkey is condemning him to death. And he walks this road that only he can walk because he is actually an innocent scapegoat. He has done nothing wrong. He's not sinned one time. He is the least deserving of this treatment. And it's mind-blowing. And Mark invites us to actually take a look at our my own ugly self in the mirror. You say, well, actually, I, I, if I was there, I'm not sure I would have done anything different. But what's beautiful about Mark's story is that obviously, you know, we'll fast forward a little bit, crucifixion, the death, the resurrection. Jesus comes out of the tomb and he says, your guys, your, your way of dealing with people doesn't work. Your way of dealing with problems and anxiety doesn't work. Your violence against each other doesn't solve anything. In fact, your sacrificial system is redundant. You don't need it. I've done that for you, finally. Take, I've, I've taken that off the table. You don't need to bring your lambs to this anymore. You don't need a mediator between God the Father and you anymore. The priesthood goes on all of you, Jesus says. I will actually dwell in you. You will actually be the temple everywhere you go. This whole thing is it's over. The Spirit of God can actually live inside of you, Jesus says. I'm going to give it to you. And it's world-changing. Because what Jesus actually has done, Jesus says, you know what, you know, the, the, the chocolate bar, you know, don't worry. You don't have to be like this person or this person. You don't have to desire them. Follow me. Imitate me. Be like me. Because Jesus says, guess what? I'm not going to pretend to be like you. I'm not going to copy you. You be like me. I'm imitating the Father. I'm imitating the Father. You imitate me. And by imitating me, you're imitating the Father. And this whole thing stops. You can be differentiated from the systems of the world. 
And here's Jesus says, this is life. This is actual salvation. Because when you imitate Jesus, and he's imitating God, and Jesus isn't imitating you, he's not caught in this weird circle. If you're not imitating others, you actually become your truest self. If you're imitating Jesus, who's imitating the Father, you become most you. You become most human. Jesus literally brings humanity back to us. And I, I think it's remarkable. And I think the way Mark kind of invites us to that, to that position, it's not condemning. This is why it's incredible that Mark could write as like a timestamp of his own life. Like, hey, yeah, yeah, no worries, guys. I was there. I left him. I was so scared. I was in my bed sheet. Someone grabbed me and I ran away naked. What a loser. Don't worry. Peter says, yeah, yeah. Mark, buddy, you can write my story in there. I denied him three times. And that night I said I would die for him. How embarrassing. Don't worry. That's a different life. I'm a changed person. The disciples could say, yeah, Mark, write us all in there. We were all cowards. Absolutely. We didn't understand. Mark, right. Yeah. We didn't get it. Time and time again. Man, Mark, you made us look really dumb. But we were. Because we didn't get it. They meet Jesus. They're filled with his spirit. Their lives orient in a totally different way. And those disciples, Peter in particular, can then in his own life, some years later, face his own death and stand differentiated in the same way that his master did and be crucified. And trying to one-up Jesus, probably Peter's like, no, 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 you crucified me upside down. I don't even deserve to be crucified normally. How is it that that guy can go from denying Jesus three times to actually standing before his own death, totally at peace. It's the salvation of Jesus. As we imitate him, we actually find our true selves. We become our true humans who God has crafted us to be. And it becomes literal salvation to the world. So it shouldn't be a surprise that in some time, after this, the more Christians are filling, filling the earth, the more people are standing differentiated from the, from the kind of the earthly systems, the more like little Jesuses are walking around behaving this way that the world begins to change, literally. That we don't sacrifice children anymore. They did in Jesus' day. We don't do that anymore. We have a very different view of violence. It doesn't mean that violence has stopped. Of course not. There's a, too much violence in the world. But in Roman times, it was nothing to slaughter thousands of people. Their view of humanity was totally debased. The world has changed because of Jesus. Because we're imitators of him. We're acting like him. And as we act like him, the system of the world literally 
is reshaped in his image. And it brings about human, or is to bring about human flourishing. And I think that's pretty remarkable. Thank you for participating in my experiment this morning. But let's go to prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you stand apart, you stand separate. That somehow you, with your divinity and humanity completely intermingled, you were able to completely be human and yet not act humanly in the ways that human beings have just for so long acted in our own sin, in our own hubris, in our own desire for control. But Jesus, you actually recall us back to the garden scene where we can walk in communion with you. That through your sacrifice, that you ended all sacrifices, that you invite us to be a part of something grand and beautiful, which is the rehumanizing of the world. And we thank you, Jesus, that most of us in this room, if not all of us, have begun that process of finding our true selves through you. And so, Jesus, may we stand at peace. May we be people of peace. May we bring peace where we go. May we not be swayed by the anxiousness of our earthly systems. As strong as those poles are, may we find actual, literal peace in who you are. We thank you that you make us human. We thank you that you restore, that you redeem. We thank you that you promise that what isn't even redeemed now on earth will be redeemed in the end. That you are not only the, the king of, of this earthly realm presently, but you are the holder of, of the keys of death in Hades. That you are the eternal king. And that we don't have to be af afraid of, of death because we know that you are on the other side. Thank you that you give us your spirit. We thank you that uh, you're present even among us now. And we ask that you continue to lead and guide our congregation, our conversation, as we move into the, the nuts and bolts of our, of our future as a church. And we thank you for all these things in your name.